The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Our next guest has been with us a couple of times on the programme previously talking about terrific books that he has written such as Empire of Pain about the opioid crisis in the United States and Say Nothing which was his investigation into the murder of Jean McConville in Belfast back in the 1970s. He has now published a book Rogues, True Stories of Grifters, Killers, Rebels and Crooks which is Patrick I believe a collection of work that you've done previously in magazine format. Yeah, that's right. It's it's a collection of uh, 12 stories from the last uh, 12 years or so, uh, all of which originally ran in the New Yorker magazine where I, where I write. Okay, let's get straight to one or two of the stories because I'm fascinated by them. Would you tell me please the story of Amy Bishop? Amy Bishop was a professor at the University of Alabama who in 2010, during a faculty meeting, pulled out a gun and shot six of her colleagues, killing three of them. So it was quite an unusual case in that uh, I'm afraid, you know, mass shootings have become pretty much a, you know, a weekly occurrence uh, in the United States. But mass shootings by women are really rare. And so that was one aspect of this case that was was interesting. But the, the more interesting detail is that after this massacre in 2010, it emerged that back in the 1980s, when she was a young woman, Amy Bishop had shot and killed her younger brother, Seth, with a shotgun. There was only one witness. It was their mother, Judy. And when the police came, she said, I saw the whole thing. It was an accident. And so that story is, is about me kind of going back to the Boston suburb where Amy Bishop grew up and looking at that earlier incident and whether it really was an accident or something more sinister that had been covered up at the time. That sounds like a fascinating thing to do. Does it almost make you like a police investigator to an extent, but without the powers to actually detain and question? Yeah, that's a good way of thinking of it. I mean, it it is strange because I am investigating a lot of the time and sometimes as in this case investigating a cold case, right? Something that's 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 decades old. Um it's interesting I I don't have the power to subpoena people or to force them to testify or to to detain them or or make them talk to me. Um but the burden of proof is often, you know, is is also different for me, right? I don't have to convict anybody. I'm just trying to sort of figure out uh, as close as I can what really happened and to write about it. But then the challenge for you is to persuade people to talk to you, to open up to you. Yeah, and they don't always. I mean, you know, about half of the stories in this collection, there are 12 stories altogether, and about six of them are about people who, for one reason or another, wouldn't speak to me. Um, to me that, you know, I think for some journalists, that's kind of the end of the road. If the, if the person won't talk, then they just move on and they write a different story. For me, that's often just the beginning. How do you pick your stories? You know, I wish I had a a good analytical answer for it. I, 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 usually it's something grips me, something pulls me in. And and as often as not, it's characters. I mean, it's, you know, most of the characters in this book, most of the people, I call them characters, but of course they're real people. They have forceful personalities. They have a kind of charisma, and they often end up bending the rules or breaking them. Um, and it's interesting to me the, the the lives that these people lead. So it's very rarely the case that I I pick an issue um, that I that I want to delve into. It's it's more often the case that it's the story that draws me in. And I, I tend to think that you know most of us. Um, I think are hardwired, you know, you know, virtually from the cradle to process information better when it's told as a story. So my hope is that um, even though these stories are all true and they've been fact-checked, and some of them are quite wild and outlandish, 
that um, that what is pulling you in, you know, is 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 the the narrative and the characters. You're very fortunate, Patrick, in this era for modern media where everything is dictated by the algorithms as to what it's anticipated the reader will actually want, that you can pick your own stories, sometimes the offbeat ones, and then that the New Yorker gives you the time to do the research and write. Yeah, it's a great luxury. I mean, it, it's, it's um, you know, I, I sometimes spend four, five, six months on a story. Occasionally, I'll spend a year on a story. And they give me the the resources to tra- you know travel around the world and hire fixers and interpreters and pay for court documents and I, I'm I'm very acutely aware that it's a privilege for me to be able to do this work and um, on the one hand uh, you know the New Yorker is 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 profitable and subscriptions are up and it's all going well on the other hand the overall indications for the industry don't look great. So there's not a huge amount of comfort in being the last of the dinosaurs. Tell us about your hunt for El Chapo inside the capture of the world's most notorious drug lord. So I was really intrigued by this guy, Chapo Guzman, who ran the the biggest drug trafficking organization in history, the Sinaloa Cartel in Mexico, which has, you know, had had operations in nearly 50 countries. I mean, they're they're truly a global business. And I, I was interested in the cartel as a business. We think of them as, you know, these Mexican drug trafficking organizations as criminal organizations. But I was just intrigued by the idea that this is a a kind of dark mirror of capitalism, right? It's a big commodities business. And Chapo Guzman is this guy who grew up in the mountains of Mexico. He was illiterate, and yet he ran this multi-billion dollar clandestine drug enterprise. He'd been in hiding for years up in the mountains running his business. And he was finally captured. And I I had written about him before. And so I got a call one weekend from my editor saying, they just got Chapo. Can you write a story about how they got him? And I wrote this big piece called The Hunt for El Chapo, where you're really kind of inside that operation to track him down. And there's a lot of crazy chases through the sewers and secret tunnels and all, all sorts of intrigue. Um, And then the funny postscript on that piece is after it came out, I got a call from a lawyer for the Guzman family asking if I might like to ghostwrite Chapo's memoirs. Were you tempted in any way by that possibility? I was tempted for about a minute. I mean, this is a guy I'd been very intrigued by and hadn't had the chance to sit across in a room and the opportunity had come up to, I was going to, there was a whole arrangement where his daughter was going to be involved and we would get questions in to him and he would send things out. But, um, listen, I, you know, as much as the story is fun and I think that there's a lot of kind of wild and outlandish details in the life of this guy. And I lean into those, to the drama and the fun of those. I never lose sight of the fact that this is somebody who's responsible for thousands of murders, right? So I feel as though in the context of a piece, I was able to to carry it off, to sort of carry off that balance between the narrative fun and and the quite grim details of his career. Um, <laughs> serving as his uh, as his ghostwriter, his ventriloquist, I think that might have been a bit more difficult. Well understood. But were you ever fearful for your own safety doing stories such as that one or about Manzer Alcazar, the Prince of Marbella, the uh, arms dealer, or also maybe when you went to Holland as well and you were profiling uh, Astrid Holladier, whose uh, brother was seeking to kill her? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's a tricky thing. I, I don't um, I, I don't like it when journalists valorize their own bravery, and I I should say particularly in the Mexico context that it's incredibly dangerous to be a journalist covering the narcos in Mexico if you're Mexican, 
that lots and lots of Mexican journalists have been killed in recent years. Um, but I always had a U.S. passport and a ticket home. And so I do think that things were safer for me. In some of those other cases, yeah, there are some sort of hairy moments, right? I mean, visiting Astrid Haleda, whose whose brother was trying to kill her and uh, interviewing her in hiding in a safe house. Um, you do start to look over your shoulder a little bit. But, you know, I've got a family at home. I'm I'm pretty careful about these things. You also write profiles, and two of the uh, stories in this book are fascinating profiles. One, for example, Mark Burnett, the creator of the reality TV show The Apprentice. Now, what brought you to that particular piece, and how did you get on with it? Well, I like a, I like a story about the guy behind the guy. And in Mark Burnett's case, you know, everybody was talking about Donald Trump uh, and how it could possibly be that he was elected president of the United States. And I remembered from an earlier era, because I originally moved to New York City for college in 1995. At that time, Donald Trump was kind of a punchline in American life. He was a joke. And it was really Mark Burnett with this reality show, The Apprentice, who turned Trump into this guy who could plausibly be a presidential candidate. It was this kind of myth-making, right, to suggest that he was this brilliant plutocrat, this this wizened businessman who everything he touched turned to gold. All of that was just a fabrication. And I interviewed all these people who worked on the show, and they said, in the words of one of them, he said it was that we, we all knew that his empire was in tatters. It, what he said was it, it was like we took the court jester and uh, and dressed him up as the king. And I was interested in that and in, in this kind of, um, I think, quite toxic philosophy that Burnett has that all politics is really just entertainment by other means. Um, and listen, I mean, I think you can see this with Boris Johnson. I think this it's not just in the in the United States that this is the case. I think we're, we're all living with the consequences of that shift. One final one. And again, maybe a slightly different piece in the collection. Uh, the final chapter, the portrait of the food writer, traveller and broadcaster, Anthony Bourdain. How did you get to know him and... How then did his suicide impact upon you? So I had written some some um, some quite dark stories. You know, I'd written a big piece about about uh, the disappeared in Northern Ireland, and a, a piece that's in the book about um, the Boston Marathon bomber and his attorney, and a story about the Lockerbie bombing. And after that string of dark stories, my editor said, "You need a little R and R. What would you like to do? You know, what what's your dream assignment?" And I said, "I want to travel with Anthony Bourdain." So I spent a year working on that piece, um, got to know him really well, shared a lot of meals with him, went to Vietnam with him to Hanoi, which is one of his favorite places. And it was a strange experience because it wasn't all fun. I mean, about halfway through that year, I remember calling my editor and saying, God, this has gotten quite dark. This guy's in a in a dark place in his life. Of course, I I couldn't have imagined how bad things really were. And so I was as shocked as anyone else by his suicide. Um, it was devastating, and, but I but I felt very lucky to have gotten to know him when I did, and and I know he was pleased with the piece that I wrote. He felt that it really captured something about him, um, and and listen, I think it's a real testament to uh, the vitality of the guy that he's he's been dead for several years now, and I still think about him all the time. I think a lot of people still remember him very much. It's a terrific collection of work. It's called Rogues, True Stories of Grifters, Killers, Rebels and Crooks. Patrick Radenkeefe, thank you again for being with us here on The Last Word of Today FM. Oh, it's great to be with you again. Thank you. 
The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here.